This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, I'm Claire Bonnyman, and welcome to The Loop. A big challenge in the province right now lies outside the urban centers. You've probably heard of closures in rural areas, emergency rooms, specialized units, hospitals, and AHS sites facing service disruptions and shortages. It's alarming to see the need and think about how people can get medical attention or even just a checkup if they live in rural Alberta. CBC producer and reporter Ariel Fournier has been paying close attention to this, finding and sharing healthcare stories from outside Edmonton for the last couple of months. Ariel, hello and welcome to The Loop. Hey, Claire. So uh, set the scene. If rural healthcare had like a tagline right now, what would it be? I would say if they were to... Uh, hang a sign in the window would probably be, we're hiring. Uh, (laughs) I think just in terms of research and talking to people, a very, very common theme was how staffing shortages is affecting people in all kinds of ways, how there are not enough, how it's hard to find a family doctor, how ambulances sometimes can't get there on time, how uh, nurses aren't available. So sometimes that means more closures, all sorts of reasons. Um, that staff shortages are just impacting the kind of daily access to care people can get. It's a really long list. How did this series get started? How did you get into this? Well, I would say I was sort of uh, tipped off to this issue by the fact that it has become a major political issue. Uh, it's a major election issue. The province has a, been making a lot of promises about solutions that they plan to deliver to address this. And in the city, we're seeing a lot of wait times going up. And that's definitely true in rural Alberta. But often, as you just mentioned, it also means just not getting certain services. And I started by looking in northeastern Alberta, mm-hmm. because that was an area where I saw like a microcosm of a lot of some of these concerns. And that meant that I ended up spending a lot of time in Bonneville, because um, ah. that's in between Lac La Biche and the Cold Lake area, where I also traveled to. And uh, Bonneville is actually well set up to have visitors hanging out there for a while, as I discovered, (laughs) because they have a ton of hotels and a ton of restaurants because of their oil industry. A lot of that um, oil gets trucked out. So there are a lot of people who travel into the community for work um, for, you know, weeks at a time or for days at a time. Um, So, yeah, there's a huge amount of um, accommodation. And, uh, yeah, I got to check out all the Restaurants on Main Street. <laughs> Any big like recommendations if I'm heading to Bonneville? Yeah, I really did like uh, Fire King Kebab. Oh, that was really really good. And Yum. also, I had this thing that I guess is kind of a prairie special, but I had um, Egg Fu Young from their Chinese restaurant. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Which I guess most people know from small town Chinese restaurants, but it's I that was new to me. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. it's one of those classic dishes. Yeah, every small town with their like Chinese restaurant, the Egg Fu Young is always really good. Yeah. It, it was. It was good. <laughs> so back to these trends and the things that are happening. You did notice something happening in the province that is both surprising and, and weirdly makes a lot of sense. South African doctors. So just how many doctors in Alberta are from that country? Yeah, I mean, it is surprising to me as someone who's mostly lived in cities. Um, but I think a lot of rural people actually know this, that the 
odds are pretty good that they'll have a South African doctor. Uh, And based on the numbers sent to me by the Alberta College of Physicians and Surgeons in northern Alberta, about a third of rural doctors are trained in South Africa. And then province-wide, it's about 13% of rural physicians, like throughout the entire province. Um, But if you really look at, on paper, how many physicians in Alberta are trained in South Africa, they're vastly overrepresented. And a way that I, an interesting way that I thought illustrated this was that there are more um, Alberta physicians who speak Afrikaans, that's the Dutch colonial language that's uh, spoken in South Africa, than there are doctors who speak Punjabi, Cantonese, Tagalog, Ukrainian, even (laughs) Hindi. So there are a lot of, if you need service in Afrikaans. You got it. You got it. (laughs) Why do they come here? Well, there's a kind of interesting history behind it. So for one, since the 70s, the College of Physicians and Surgeons has recognized South African doctors as being on a short list of places where they recognize their training as more or less equivalent to here in Canada. So it's easier for them than doctors from other international jurisdictions to transfer their credentials without too many barriers. And there's also a chronic problem with recruiting Canadian trained doctors, particularly to rural medicine. And I visited Lac La Biche, where, for example, their community currently has five doctors and every one of them trained in South Africa. Hmm. Uh, the One of them who is in charge of recruitment told me that in his nine years at the hospital, they've never had a doctor who trained in Canada even apply to work there. And he also told me that in South Africa, they're particularly well trained uh, with skills that you need in rural medicine. So this is Dr. Norkier, and here's what he had to say about that. We are used to sort of, let's say we get thrown into the deep end, but we often have to manage an emergency department by ourselves. Um, You have to get trained in certain procedure skills in South Africa. Every physician that finishes um, has to have done 10 C-sections, for instance. So before you start specializing psychiatry or anything like that, every single one would have had to at least done 10 of them. I think that's part of the thing we enjoy about working here. It is challenging sometimes when you don't have all that immediate access to specialists or maybe certain kind of scans. But it's, it's, I think it's part of the challenge and part of the thing that draws us here. I love hearing that accent, so now I feel like I need to go to rural Alberta. <laughs> Just... I know. It is It is a very, like, to hear, yeah, the, he was a good storyteller, so were yep. his colleagues. And, and certainly, um, yes, there's a certain there's very, a charm. very appealing rhythm. Yes. Um, it's interesting. So they, there's this working in sometimes very under-resourced public hospitals. Residents um, there or interns there have to do a ton of things that mm. you would have to do in these kind of smaller hospitals. And so... That's why I was saying that they are particularly well suited. But then there's this other side to that wave of migration. A recent report from the United Nations found that South Africa has one of the highest violent crime rates in the world. And post-apartheid brutality and class divisions in society have lingered. Uh, Several people told me that, well, they do have this world-class training in South Africa. The hospitals can be very under-resourced and people fear for their safety. Dr. Norky even told me that one day while he was working, a colleague went to the gas station on break uh, and he never came back. And later they did find out that he had been killed. Wow. Yeah, that's definitely a push. 
to want to come to a different place. So that part of it really does make sense. Do you get the sense, though, that Alberta, on the other side of this equation, is going to continue to accept these doctors at the same rate as we go forward? Yeah, it's interesting because the CPSA, when I asked them about this, said the trend is that there are more doctors coming from countries outside of Canada beyond South Africa. Mm. So right now, actually, 80% of Alberta rural physicians are international from all over the world. Um, But there are still many barriers for uh, international graduates to get their credentials recognized here, unless you're from a place like South Africa, where you're on this approved jurisdiction list, uh, you will have to maybe even repeat your residency. Oh, wow. So it's a lot of hoops to jump through. And uh, the CPSA just launched a pilot where they want to make it easier for people from approved jurisdictions like South Africa, like Ireland, because there it's still a little there still are some barriers for them to make it a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. But they're not planning on expanding the list of improved jurisdictions until later. They did say that could be a next step, but they want to see how this pilot goes first. Right. So, I mean, we ha- certainly rely on a lot of. International doctors, there's still an exodus from South Africa. We can probably expect to see that continue, but mm-hmm. it it is proving more difficult than it used to be. Yeah. What about more homegrown talent? I mean, is there anything that could encourage Canadian doctors to want to work in these more rural and, and more remote, really, areas? Yeah, and that's certainly something a lot of places, a lot of provinces are talking about. Yeah. And and there have been some, some sort of recent announcements about this. Uh, the province was talking about having funding training hubs in Grand Prairie and Lethbridge that would aim at training people specifically as rural positions. And in fact, I saw firsthand how a model like this might work because uh, in Lac La Biche, they had a resident named Tover Mostert who is uh, in a rural medicine program that is based out of Red Deer. And he grew up in northern BC. He's always wanted to work in a rural community. And this training would allow him to do that. It certainly cemented my love for it. I really like how every day is different. And uh, you see a whole bunch of different things every day, and it's nice seeing the same people. In fact, I can um, tell you that I will not be going back to a city. <laughs> I much prefer small town medicine. <laughs> he likes that small town charm. I get it. I get it. Yeah, he, he does. And it's um, part of why I think he's so passionate to become a rural physician is that he would be taking after his own father, oh. who was a doctor in the town where he grew up. But ironically, guess where his dad trained? I feel like the last name gave it a hint. Is it South Africa? Yes. <laughs> what well, brilliant, Claire? How, how did I get that? <laughs> how did you get it? I mean, obviously, we can't just rely on South African doctors to train the next generation of maybe Canadian doctors. Yeah. So that's why there are so many of these efforts to try and promote more training to make it easier for other international doctors to come in, that sort of thing. And Mm -hmm. that's why the province is looking very hard at this. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely fascinating when you get those numbers of 80% of doctors coming from somewhere else and you see this, you know, the Afrikaans language taken off. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's cool that one country can supply so many doctors, but there's also so many nuances to communities in rural Alberta. Um, You know, we talk a lot about Indigenous communities who could benefit from more localized care, community-led health care. That's also something... Yeah, absolutely. Culturally specific care in community care within uh, First Nations, Indigenous, Métis communities. That's um, been 
uh, a huge focus all over the country and something that I think a lot of um, jurisdictions are are looking to address better. Mm. And there are a lot of people, I mean, the issue is partly that while it's been such a net win to have so many international doctors for rural communities in terms of it's been a huge supply, there are still in urban and in rural communities, very few indigenous doctors. Mm. And to be honest, I did hear from a lot of um, indigenous people in different rural communities who said that going outside their community for medical care was something that was a big challenge um, and partly because of stereotypes and racism and that sometimes it could even keep people from wanting to go to a hospital or they had stopped going to a particular health facility because of the treatment they received. Um, I spoke to Sean Daniels, who lives on the Elizabeth Métis Settlement. That's a community that's between Bonneville and Cold Lake. And he told me a story about what happened after he broke a glass doing dishes and he cut his hand. It was quite deep. And so the next day he went to an emergency room because it was still bleeding. After the sixth hour, and finally a doctor came up to me and said, okay, follow me. So we went, we walked into a little corridor. She looked at it all of about 10 seconds and said it was too late that I took too long to come in. There was nothing she could do for me. It'll stop bleeding on its own. She didn't have any advice for me or anything. All she That's what she gave me was, it's too late. We can't do anything for you now because you waited too long to come and see me. So Sean said a day and a half later, you know, he he went home. He was pretty frustrated and he could see that his wound hadn't stopped bleeding. So he went to a different hospital um, and he did get a doctor who saw it and did say it could be stitched up. So that's why he said he couldn't help but think he wasn't taken seriously at this first place because of how he looks. What's your feeling about why it took so long? Honestly, I think it's because I'm the wrong color. I've been saying that for years, and a lot of people that are close to me haven't had quite the same experience, but they're more or less put on the back burner as well. To me, there's a sign when you walk in, it says if it's bleeding or something broken, you'll be one of the first ones to look at. So I don't know what their excuse was. There was 20 people in front of me that were all bleeding. Or I don't understand why I sat there for six hours cleaning my own wound while bleeding. Wow. Yeah. And and like I said, Sean was far from the only person who told me that they felt like they were ignored or mistreated by medical staff um, because of racism. I have a story coming out this week on Métis settlements in Canada pushing for better health care. And many leaders in the communities echoed those concerns, which is a part of the reason that they want more in-community care. Mm -hmm. There are eight Métis settlements in Canada. Uh, These are uh, Métis communities with land agreements and um, this unique within the country. Um, But none of them, while they have small health facilities, none of them have a full-time doctor. And in Elizabeth, they have even less resources than they used to because their full-time nurse left a few years ago and they haven't found a replacement yet. So I met up with the Elizabeth Métis Settlement Counselor, Kathy LePin, and she showed me what that health center looks like and told me about some of the resources they would like to see on settlements. Hi. 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 
Kathy Lapin from Elizabeth Settlement. I'm the chair for Elizabeth, and I also sit as a chair for the uh, Métis Health Board. Okay. okay, this is the health center. Well, this is what we have for a health center. Yeah. <laughs> so for services, there's we have the health nurse one day a week, and sometimes we have the home care person for the people that are stuck at home. Our mental health person comes in sometimes one day a week, depending. Really? No, this is not much. This is what we... Uh, rent out to uh, Albert Health Services and this is the space that they rent and, they, and there's another little office like a little kitchen thingy not a kitchen thingy but a place for them to sit and this is everything for a health center well the nurse she she had a leave of absence for a year nobody filled that spot they kept posting it posting it she was what you would consider full-time when she could be here so it was a little bit different than before COVID, then she was still coming, but not as well. COVID, you know, you weren't allowed to go too many places, so that kind of changed all that. And then that's why I think they tried to do through phone or where you're online with them. But because our internet and people's internets, it's not a very successful thing. There's a desk, uh, cupboards, and the place to weigh a baby, and uh, a little bed. We're examining, I guess. I'm not sure. And then they have their own little cooler setup. Can't even describe the size of it unless I measure it. But it's a little bit about a bedroom, maybe a single bedroom. Yeah, a little bit bigger than that, just about. Mm-hmm. And this is what you've had for years or so. Oh yeah, we had ten years ago, and I got elected for the council in our settlement. And ten years ago, we had very little funding. So uh, so we started um, lobbying with AHS for uh, services. The, some, of the, some of the issues we had was the lack of any kind of service in communities. Most places don't really have a health unit. Paddlepur is the only one that got a health unit with a doctor. One of the things that's always concerning us is um, our elders end up getting put in old folks' homes in town. And for us, that's detrimental because culturally, it's hard on our communities because to send your your elders out and they come back in a coffin. And then there's the other issues of people going to see specialists in Edmonton or anywhere. In all our communities, we fundraise because people can't afford to go see like cancer doctors, any kind of doctors out there. You have to pay for everything. So we do fundraisers for stuff like that. All settlements do that. We have um, a, a pop machine and a little chips machine, and that's we use that. We use that money. We get donations, and then it comes out of people's personal pockets, or we do a little fundraiser of some kind, a little auction sale, whatever. We've had we had one boy that had he was I don't remember how old he was, but he had cancer, and that's how. We were able to for him to go stay over there with his mom for treatments. We had raised uh, $10,000 for him with the help of um, Knights of Columbus. Every year here, we have somebody diagnosed with cancer. Every year, it's without fail. And for being such a small community, uh, that's a burden everybody hears and knows about. Those are the kinds of things we deal with as a council in all our settlements. It's not just doing policies or bylaws. 
we have to deal with the human part of it. And the other challenges would be is is the treatment that you do get when you do go to emergencies, doctors. It's it it's real and it's there. We we just try to live with it the best we can. We're hoping to see change, and right now we have coming, which will be awesome if it all falls into place. Is um, we partnership to Telus and they with a um, medical van. So maybe by this fall we'll have a traveling doctor coming to three settlements, and then we have uh, with Alberta Health Services. Just we got a grant to do. Uh, some training for um, early responders for firefighters and that we're hoping it'll kind of help so we get two trained per per community so you have somebody always available sort of sort of to fix the bandage i guess a little bit moving forward <laughs> did you finish your muffins no i didn't i gotta i gotta finish it yeah so uh kathy lepin is the chair uh for the elizabeth metis settlement that's a about a 30-minute drive uh, northeast of Bonneville. The web story with more details about Métis Settlement Healthcare will be up on cbc.ca slash Edmonton. It paints such a really clear picture of need um, and, and of the people working so hard to try and serve this community in the best way that they can. You're still doing this work, reporting these stories. What's been the big takeaway from spending so much time in these communities and hearing about their healthcare situations? I think it's, it, you know, everyone cares about healthcare. And to me, the surprise in some ways was that people are much more eager to talk even about the problems or issues that they see than I expected really in a lot of communities and you know I think just ask anyone who's a, a frontline worker in healthcare what it's like going to a party and telling people what their job is and they are bound to get unsolicited stories about people's medical woes or medical issues it's something that people really are interested in talking about yeah and I think the hopeful part of this coverage is that there is a lot of attention on the issues and that there is a lot of will to find community, to find policy solutions that will address these needs. So from what I've heard, there are solutions out there that are viable and there are ways we could make recruitment easier or support communities in finding their own solutions. And there are people who want to be part of it. There are people who want to work in healthcare, who want to support healthcare um, and there's definitely movement to address what's going on right now. Yeah. And I guess as we head towards the next election, these conversations are only going to get louder. Absolutely. Yeah. Ariel, thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing your work. Yeah. Thank you, Claire. The Loop is a podcast from CBC Edmonton. A big thanks this week to Ariel Fournier for sharing all of her work and reporting. Our theme music is Change Your Mind by Edmonton musician John Common. And I'm Claire Bonneman. Thank you so much for listening. The Loop is recorded on Treaty 6 territory, traditional lands of First Nations and Métis communities. If you want to get in touch with us, you can send us an email, theloop at cbc.ca. Leave us a rating or review wherever you download the show. And you can find us on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.